Amen. Hey, good morning. I'm Cameron. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. And uh, thank you, John. I, I do want to commend to you. I know the deacons are um, looking. If you know of some folks who are in need this holiday season and we can be of some help to them and then through our mercy, <clears throat> excuse me, mercy ministry, feel free to reach out to any one of the deacons. Dan, being the chairman, uh, can get that information uh, to the rest of the deacons. And we would love to meet some needs for folks that you know that we can be a blessing to this holiday season as it can be a very difficult season. So just reach out to them. Uh, many of you have asked how our anniversary trip went. It went very well. We discovered some things. We are not tiny house people. Uh, that feels a very bourgeois thing to say, that I even have the choice to say something like that. Uh, but 200 square feet is uh, about 800 square feet too small for me. And so, uh, anyway, but we had a great time. Thank you for asking. It is good to be back with you all. If you would be turning in your copies of God's Word to Ruth, chapter 3 will be in verses 1 through 13 this morning. And as you're turning there, let me give you the key truth. God blesses our efforts to maintain our integrity and honor him in tempting circumstances. Let me say that again. God blesses our efforts to maintain our integrity and honor and honor him in tempting circumstances. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Ruth chapter three. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman." And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, it is very important that we recognize that there is a lot of tension in this particular section of Ruth, right? There's been some tension that's been building. Naomi really didn't know that it, Ruth was working in Boaz's fields until she came back. Uh, Matt uh, taught on that last week when uh, Ruth had experienced the grand hospitality, so similar and beautiful uh, in its representation of the gospel itself. When she returned with all that food that was so necessary to her and Naomi's existence, she found out that this was in fact Boaz, 
someone who is from her family, and now she has a ray of hope. This person can actually redeem Ruth. But what does that mean for Naomi? Well, we don't know exactly. If Ruth holds true to character, more than likely, she would take care of her mother-in-law, but that's not a guarantee. And so as you saw last week and as we'll see this week, Naomi's focus is making sure that Ruth is cared for and taken care of. Not necessarily her own wants and needs, which in and of itself is reflective of the Lord our God. And so we have here a circumstance that has caused many to spill much ink as to whether or not something tawdry is happening here. And for those of you who don't know what that word means, you can look it up. Uh, but it means, it means something, uh, well, anyway, I won't explain. So there is, there is intended, actually, a sexual tension. And this is intended because what it's going to reflect of the righteousness under the moment of temptation, of the grandest of temptations, mind you, that the folks who are loved of God want to make sure that they honor the Lord their God. This is something that we could learn from them. And again, we want to be reminded, we're not trying to, to be better. Don't, don't be a bo, bozo, be a boaz. No, we're not, we're not trying to do that. Uh, we're not worried about moralism because moralism can only carry you so far, can it not? Something supernatural actually has to be going on within us for us to not grow weary in doing good, which actually we see Boaz doing. We don't know his backstory, as Matt pointed out last week. We don't know if he's a widower. He's more than likely not married because of what we'll find out later in the story, uh, but, but he has been waiting himself. Here's a successful businessman who has, who has made it through a famine, who owns land, who, who employs people, who is not married and doesn't have children and doesn't have anyone to pass this on to. You have to understand the, the, the gravity of that for Boaz himself. It would be easy for him to, to put himself out there and choose probably from anyone he would maybe want there in Bethlehem. But for some reason, he is not yet married and he doesn't have children. So he too has been waiting, which is something more in the background. We don't know the condition in which he ha has waited. I have a suspicion, and we'll talk about that when we get to his declaration of Ruth being a blessing to him. But the, the reality is he too is part of this story, and his righteousness matters, not because it makes him righteous, but because of what it displays about the Lord our God. And so uh, as we step into this part of the story, let me ask you a question. What circumstances do you find tempting to compromise your integrity? Now, if you don't know the answer to this question, you are uh, uh, in great danger, right? Because if you wait until it is on you and you think you're going to catch up in the curve, you're not going to more than likely. And so it is very important for us to recognize ourselves, to know something about ourselves. John Calvin talks about part of uh, us knowing who we are in God is we have to know who we are and who God is and how those things intersect. And so this is one of the places of, of intersection that is very important. We have to know what it is that tempts us, right? So, so that we can prepare well for the circumstances in which we find ourselves. For many of us, it is any sort of suffering or waiting, I will confess to you, uh, I hate to wait for anything, right? I'm that guy uh, on the airplane flying through the air. Uh, it used to take people like 80 years to make it to a place, whereas I'm making it there in an hour, and if the internet speed is slow, I'm angry, right? Any sort of waiting, standing in line, 
People who don't understand line psychology or are not prepared, they get to the counter and they, it's like they suddenly realize, oh, I got to pay for stuff? What have you been doing this whole time? Right? So waiting is a place where I am at risk because of my own arrogance, my own pride. I can take the Lord's name in vain. And I didn't just say I, I cuss. I mean that as a Christian, I can display uh, such a character that is not God's righteousness that doesn't look anything like him, that people would be shocked to find out what I do for a living if, if I am left to my own devices. Other places, suffering, right? Sometimes in suffering, we think we have the right to, to, to have a little bit of comfort, right? If I'm suffering or if even you have worked hard. This is actually interesting. Oftentimes, uh, temptation comes at the end of a big project, at the end of uh, uh, graduating from uh, some sort of school. All of these things are places of temptation because we think we've earned something. So the issue, actually, if you've been paying attention, is not the temptation or the actual manifestation of the sin. It is the arrogance that thinks we should be able to do as we please when we want. That is the thing that we have to mortify within ourselves and recognize where it shows up, right, uh, more often than not. Because you can actually get through those circumstances very righteously and still be insanely arrogant and think that you are owed something for that as well. So here what we see is none of these folks are displaying any sort of God owes me something. Even in Naomi's bitterness, she never said that God owed her anything. What she did say was that she, was, she vented her spleen in saying that she was, she was bitter, that she must have done something wrong. That, that, that this was somehow even still yet just of the Lord. She has not compromised her integrity in the story at all, even in deciding to be called bitter. That's not a compromise. That's just a true statement sometimes. As Susan and I were reflecting on the last year, it has been a hard year for Susan. We actually said it, I said, it's been a good year with some hard things. And she said, it's been a hard year with some good things. And, and it's not that we're, it's just she, what she's going through with her parents. It is very, very difficult to carry that and, and to not at times feel like, I am bitter. And the Lord can handle that, right? That is actually a more honest, less arrogant statement than to say, no, I can handle it all in my own strength. Behold, you should write books about me, right? Or at least poetry. Uh, <laughs> and so, so what we see is Ruth also is in a difficult circumstance, right? Like we don't know where they live, right? Like where would they live? They don't have land. They didn't come back to, it's not like where we are. There's no like homeless shelter. Chances are they are, are underhoused. They're probably living in some sort of wooden hut that someone in graciousness or kindness has offered to them, or they may be on the move. We don't know, so I don't want to make too much out of that, but the reality is they're not living in comfortable circumstances. And so here we have that Naomi has discovered that Boaz is the one for which Ruth is working and gleaning. And so she comes up with an idea. Now, this idea is born of, and I love the way she puts this. She says, my daughter. Notice again how at different times Ruth is referred to with great affection or with critical distance in terms of calling her a foreigner or a Moabite. But here we see affection. My daughter. Should I not seek rest for you? After all Naomi has been through, 
for her to have Ruth foremost in her mind and what it is that she needs. Because think about this for a second. Ruth was, was married for 10 years, so more than likely she's got to be at least maybe in her mid-20s, maybe late-20s at this point. And I don't know if you've ever worked outside for long periods of time, especially in the Middle East. It can be hard on you, right? And so how long can she do that? How long can she carry 30, 40 pounds? You know, the ephah, we're going to see later she carries 80 pounds. Uh, how long can she do that? Because Naomi, notice Naomi, whatever age she is, she's not participating. So how long can this go on? Well, interestingly, one time uh, in Macon, I had a, a, a women's, they were wives of doctors, and it was a book club. And I don't know how to make all that work out for you, but it's just wives of doctors who had a book club. And I got invited because I was treating one of them, a lady named Katie Durkee, who actually became a Christian in the time that I was treating her. And she asked me, hey, what, what kind of Christian book ought we read? And she told me, all these folks are hostile to the gospel. And I thought, well, I don't know. Uh, and I picked God in the Alley by Greg Paul. And Greg Paul had a ministry in Toronto uh, to the inner city. And if you know anything about the inner city in Toronto, it, it add cold to whatever the worst of what you can think of, right? And it's, and it's a huge factor. So she decided to get them to read this book. But then she came back to me and she said, well, I can't lead the discussion. I really don't understand these things. Why don't you come? Oh, okay, I'll do that. All right. So I get there and uh, it was like, like sharks waiting for blood to hit the water. And it wasn't going to take long because the book was God in the alley. And so, uh, but the good thing about this book is it's not a how-to book. It's, it's really just telling the stories of the people that Greg Paul has ministered to in Toronto and how the Lord actually arrives long before even Greg uh, could and, and he encounters God oftentimes. Well, one of the stories was a prostitute named Rose. And Rose had three kids and uh, she was now 30, and she had no family because her family had, um, had abused her when she was young, uh, unfortunately, and it was multiple family members, and they kicked her out, or she ran away, or some combination of both, in about the fifth grade, okay? So she had a sixth grade education at best at this point, and no family to speak of. Now, that's very important to why I'm telling you this story, because it's very important for us to think things through. So... I asked, and I had a whiteboard. Now, if Rob Bell hadn't ruined whiteboards for preachers for all time, I'd have one up here on occasion, and I would use it. But he's ruined it, so I don't do that. Uh, and for those of you who know, you know. Uh, and so, uh, so she, I had a whiteboard, and I said, all right, how do we help Rose? And one lady said, she needs to get a job. I said, Great. Let's do that. Let's get her a job. Now, this was before housing costs what it costs now, and Burger King was not paying as much as they pay now, but it's a wash if you think about it. So I said, all right, what level of job can a person with a sixth-grade education get with no skill set other than being a prostitute? And they got real quiet like you are. I said, all right, let's get her a, let's get her a job at McDonald's, Okay. And all right, so we, uh, 40 hours a week, I, I'm going to be generous. I gave her 10 bucks an hour because it was Toronto. And I think you ought to pay 10 bucks for a hamburger in Toronto. And so, uh, so she gets 10 bucks an hour. We did the math. I said, all right, that's, uh, that's roughly $400 a week without taxes. What do taxes in Canada run? Let's just do American taxes, 40% right off the rip. Okay? 
So now she's down to, what is that, uh, uh, 240 right? She's got $240 for a week's work. It's three kids. Now, who's keeping the kids while she's at work? They're not school age yet, just in case you were hoping they were, so they could be at school while she's working. No, they're not. Who keeps them? For those of you who pay for childcare, how much is that a week? For three kids. Well, they st- more than 240 We ain't paid rent yet. We haven't gotten to food yet. We ain't paid the light bill. We could have her work overtime, but that's another problem. So it was funny as it began to dawn on them, hold on a second, something that they've probably said a hundred times about some homeless person in Macon, because we had lots of them, they just need a good job. That's not a bad idea, but you need to think it through. And so they're like, well, so they were were drowning at this point. I was like, y'all have any better ideas? And I go, well, she she needs to get an education. Ah, Yeah, let's do that. All right. So she can get her GED. Right? That shouldn't cost a whole bunch, but she's got to study for that thing, and she's got to pass it, and so she get, get her GED. Let's get her in college somewhere. All right, let's get her in college. How much does that cost? Uh, well, uh, who's going to keep the kids while she's taking classes? And they started to cry, actually, interestingly, because they realized that what they were offering was no solution at all for us. And the same is true here. If we don't recognize the gravity of the situation for Ruth and for Naomi in this circumstance, we fail to, to feel the weight of the book itself, right? It's, it's easy to kind of see it as, oh, you know, Ruth just needs to get a job. She just needs to do something, right? No, that would also miss the grand providences of the Lord in his provision over and over and over again. And just in case you're wondering, what's the end of the story for Rose and why Greg's telling it? Well, the church stepped in and offered to keep the kids and help out, helped her get an education, uh, helped her. Because I don't know if you know about being a a prostitute in sub-zero temperatures, but it's hard to get customers. It's hard to make a living. And as you age, a 30-year-old prostitute looks very different than an 18-year-old prostitute. Now, I know this this can be kind of weighty, but this is stuff we have to think about because there are so many in our world who are still going through that reality and even this reality that we're talking about here. And so for Naomi to say, I need to figure out how to help you out of this is very, very important for us to recognize how much she loves. She's not suggesting uh, that Ruth do anything untoward to compromise herself. What she is suggesting to Ruth is to make herself known to Boaz and make her desires known to Boaz and, and see what happens, right? And you may say, because this is a hard thing for those of us who have daughters, who could imagine turning to your daughter and saying, all right, let's get you gussied up. You're going to go find a semi-drunk dude and lay at his feet, and when he wakes up, try not to scare the stew out of him, and let's just see what happens. Because that's the way this story can sound. But given the culture and the circumstance, there was much wisdom in this that we would miss just because our, for us to try to do this culturally would make no sense whatsoever, right? And so she gives these instructions to Ruth, to try to help her, and I love the way it says it, how can I help you find rest? 
For those of you who, who have, to, have ever had to work two jobs, or you were a stay-at-home mom with more than one kid, or just one kid, let's just be honest, it can be a, a draining and tiring thing to have someone else step into your life and say, I want to help you find rest. Think about, that's Jesus, is it not? Is it not Jesus who steps in and says, come all you who are heavy laden and burdened, and I, I will give you rest. It's not a rest that's necessarily instantaneous. It's not a rest that takes away all the suffering or the pain, right? You still have to be in relationship with somebody. Boaz, I'm sure, if he's in his 40s, is pretty set in his ways, right? Is, is he going to be easy for Ruth to get along with? And Ruth, she's a Moabitess. She's not sure how all these things work, right? So there, there is, there's still yet tension to come. There's still yet suffering to come when she bears children. Will it hurt? Yes. Yes. Did Obed always behave? No. No, he didn't. So let's make sure that when we hear the rest of Christ that is being offered to us, even the rest that is to name, it is not a frictionless thing. It is not a thing that lacks suffering. It's not a thing that lacks even effort. You don't earn it, but you must cultivate it. Right? You are granted it as gift to steward and cultivate and use for your good and the good of everyone around you. This is the beauty of our salvation. And so Naomi seeks to help her to find rest. And notice how she replies. She says, I will do all that you say. Notice the echo to our, uh, to our assurance of pardon. When the angel came to Mary and said, here's what's going to happen. One of the weirdest stories you've got to think that's ever happened. It would be so strange to, to hear that, especially she was probably 14 or 15, right? Chances are, teenager of some sort. And she's like, as you say, I will do all that you say. Uh, and so we hear an echo of that even here. And so she goes down to the threshing floor, just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and it says, Mary of heart. Now, we need to be careful here because the Bible makes it very clear. Is drunkenness something we should be doing, pursuing? Nope. Is satiety, merriness of heart, uh, being able to give thanks to the Lord for what he has provided in food and drink, is that a reality? Absolutely. So to say Mary of heart doesn't mean this dude's, you know, half blown out of his mind. It doesn't even necessarily mean that he's tipsy. It just means that he was full and satiated. The Lord had been good to him. There's an echo of Ecclesiastes here too, where it says basically that, that the fullness of what we are called to do is to take joy in the food and the drink and, and the, the spouse that the Lord has given to us. And so he's got the food and the drink part down. He's Mary of heart and he's able to sleep. And so then she comes softly, uncovers his feet. Now, there's a, there's, there's a grand tension in what the Hebrew means by the uncovering of the feet, and that is intended here. We are to pause and go, wait, 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 is this, what's going on here? Now, how do we know that in this case, his feet being uncovered is not sexual? Well, further in the Hebrew, it says that he was startled awake. Well, that startling is actually referring to something supernatural that happened. So you might imagine that an angel of the Lord is the one who poked him, not Ruth. Not Ruth wasn't doing anything to him to wake him up. Because notice, when he's startled awake, he has to roll over and find out that there's a woman at his feet. So she clearly, if he's having to roll over and find her, there are places she's not. Right? 
And so for her to place herself at his feet is a submissive posture. That, and you, again, I know submission is a tough word uh, for, for many of us in this room, myself included, and I'm a dude. Uh, but we are called to submit to one another and to show humility, but to submit to that which is honoring to the Lord, not to ever submit to that which doesn't honor the Lord. Right? So she recognizes Boaz as a man of character. She would not have put herself in a position if she thought he would do something to harm her or dishonor her femininity. And so she laid his feet. Something startles him supernaturally. He looks and says, Who are you? She says, It is Ruth, your servant. And she says these words, which are so important to understanding so much of the story. She says, spread your wings over your servant. This is basically take and protect me, provide for me. She's actually, I know this is going to be strange for some of you, asking Boaz to marry her. Is it okay for women to ask men to marry them? Well, in the Bible, yep. In the South, I don't know. You guys have to figure that out. (laughs) And so, Ruth asks him, will you marry me? Will you take responsibility for me? Spread your wings over me. Think of all the Psalms that speak of the Lord taking responsibility for us as covenant people. Think of how Jesus, in essence, spreads his garment over us. 2 Corinthians 5 says it so beautifully. It is not that we will be further uncovered. We are not going to be further exposed. We will be further covered in a tent that is eternal. Death will be swallowed by life. That is what she's asking for here. Will you, Boaz, take the life that you have, the protection, the provision, and cover over the death that is coming for me? In this life of poverty and brokenness and foreignness in a land that is not my own. Think of how that is such a beautiful picture of what Christ does for us. And notice how Boaz responds. His response is very important. May you be blessed by the Lord. He doesn't say anything about himself first. He doesn't uh, uh, do anything untoward. He brings and invokes the name of his God, which helps to set the the stage of things, doesn't it, for what's going to happen next. Because again, the sexual tension here should not, it's still very high. You have a young woman at the feet of a man who's been eating and drinking, and no one knows but them and Naomi. And he starts with, may you be blessed by the Lord. So his actions must now follow that, right? So if he's going to say, may you be blessed of the Lord, he can't then turn and do with her what he wants or to render her soiled and then cast her out as Amnon does to Tamar, if you know that story. And he says, you have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. He's saying, you have preserved your honor Now, I want to be careful here because there can be echoes of purity culture here that I don't want to invoke, right? She's a widow, so we're not talking purity culture here. We're talking righteousness, which is different, right? The whole, I have all kinds of thoughts about purity culture that are not, I'm not for it. I think it places way too much emphasis upon one thing, 
in one thing only, and it usually places more emphasis upon one uh, sex, that being women, than it does men, and that I don't think is biblical or helpful. That's a conversation for another time if you want to have that conversation. But here, he's saying, you have preserved yourself, your righteousness. You have kept yourself. And he even goes on to say, people speak of you in the community. They know you are, and this is a weighty word, a worthy woman. This is why oftentimes we've spoken of Ruth following Proverbs, because she is, in essence, the Proverbs 31 woman. She displays wisdom and honor and righteousness for the good of not only herself, but all around her. And so he he makes it clear, yes, I can be a redeemer. But again, notice, notice his honor. There's another. He said, look, it is a great kindness that you have come to me and you have asked me for marriage. But I'm not, according to the law, the first. I'm not the one who has the ability to say whether or not this can happen. There is another. Now, We know that they didn't engage in anything sexual because why would he say there's another and then cost that other the opportunity to say yes or no by violating the law? He doesn't. He doesn't do that. He doesn't take advantage of the circumstance. Now, this is also a powerful undoing of Genesis 19. If you're wondering, what is Genesis 19? Well, this is where Ruth comes from. Remember, her family lineage is Lot and his two daughters who get him drunk. Notice the contrast here. They get him drunk, and they produce two lines, Moabites and Ammonites. Not good. They're not welcome in the temple. And so she, unlike her great-great-great-grandmothers, doesn't take advantage of the circumstance. And Boaz, unlike her great-great-great-grandfather, doesn't take advantage of the circumstance. Do you understand the level of temptation that would be here? You got a, let's just guess, 40-year-old bachelor who's got a beautiful woman in front of him and it is nighttime and he is merry of hearts and she is asking for marriage? Think of all the, the stuff they could come up with. Well, how many times have I, I heard this as pastor? Well, we're planning to get married anyway. It's like we're married in our hearts. Okay, <laughs> yeah, that's how that goes. Uh, and, so, and so he doesn't take advantage. In the moment of temptation, he is more concerned with his integrity, she is more concerned with her integrity and honoring the Lord than in getting what they so long for. Think of how comforting it would be to Ruth to be wanted, to, to, be, to be praised, to be enjoyed after all that she's been through. She too would take joy in this moment. And yet, Boaz says, no, not that she's offering that, but he says, listen, no. We need to honor the Lord. There is a process here. And so notice what he says to her. He says, he tells her, lie back down. And if he doesn't redeem you, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. And so he is making a promise, a vow uh, that is of great gravity and would mean a lot to her and would allow her to sleep through the night. Now, for those of you who are like, so does this mean that like, if you're not married, you can sleep in the same space? No, it doesn't mean that. And that's, you got to know yourself. That's, just, that's not smart. 
uh, and you're not Ruth and you're not Boaz, and so don't, don't, don't be foolish here. This is not a, an argument for that. In fact, this is a circumstance that argues against it in large measure because of the level of temptation that was upon them. And so, praise God that our foremother and foremother you got to remember, Boaz and Ruth are four fathers and four mothers to us in, in the spiritual lineage. We, because of the, if you look at the lineage of Christ, we who are in line of Christ, we benefited from this moment. That to them, as they were thinking about, they weren't thinking, you know, uh, I hope people in 2023, when they do Ruth for Advent, will rise up and call us blessed. They weren't thinking about that. They were just trying to get through the night. But what was most upon their hearts and minds was their own integrity and the honor of the Lord. This is what ought be true of us. And notice, again, would anybody fault Boaz? What time are we in? Judges. Would anybody fault Boaz for doing what was right in his own eyes with a young Moabitess who, by the way, put herself at his feet no. Would anybody fault Ruth, really, for trying to use her beauty, to use what she has to offer in her still yet youth to gain rest? Would anybody blame her for throwing herself at Boaz and hemming him in and getting pregnant such that he would have to take ownership of her? No, they wouldn't. They chose the narrow way. Because at this point in the story, they don't know which way it's going to go. There's an unknown redeemer that she may not like very much that may be like all the other people who do what's right in their own eyes. She is still holding in liminal space, waiting. Boaz, in the same way, instead of rising up and doing what he could do in his own eyes, chooses not to. And in so doing, the, the, the curse of the Moabites is repealed. We have the unfolding, potentially, of the Abrahamic covenant. We're not quite there yet. Let's not get excited. There's still more of the story to tell. We know where we're going to get to. But it is a beautiful thing that there is so much going on in what's just an everyday struggle. The same is true for us. Now, we are not um, matriarchs and patriarchs, as it were. And I'm using patriarch in the best sense of the word. We are, yes, in the line of Christ, but, but, but we have Christ, and, and the covenants are fulfilled. He is the yes and the amen. However... Our days, our hours, our actions, they do matter. How you live matters. How you handle your singleness. Notice these are two single people under very difficult circumstances who could, based on their yearning and their longing, choose to take up by their own strength something that they have yearned for. And they choose not to, instead continuing to honor and obey the Lord. And so often we don't. And we don't see it as opportunity to actually uh, have an impact on the kingdom with a display of the righteousness of God. I suspect that Boaz has probably struggled because he says to her, this is a greater kindness. Why would that be a kindness to him if he hasn't struggled? So we're not talking about perfection here. We're talking about orientation. We're talking about heart motive. We're talking about people who know that they are loved and want to return that love, not only to the Lord their God, but to one another in a display of that being loved. It gives them the strength to maintain their integrity and to honor the Lord. You can't do it without it. 
It won't last. So listen to what Barry G. Webb says about this. He says, properly understood, a belief in God's sovereignty does not lead to fatalism or passivity. So what did he just say? We do believe that God is sovereign, but that doesn't mean that we are not to act. It doesn't mean that we are not to try. It doesn't mean that we are not to, to ask. It doesn't mean that we are not to get involved, right? Uh, and so it's not that we are fatalistic stoics who are like, well, if God's sovereign, he'll provide, you know, as if uh, sitting around and doing nothing is what's going to attract anything other than flies. And so it is important that we recognize it's not that and it's not passivity. We do have agency. We don't have agency to make God love us more or in the first place. We do have agency to participate in the kingdom to which he has invited us in grand hospitality. He says, quite the contrary, it provides the hope. Right? So you can act, if you're acting according to his righteous character with integrity and seeking to honor him, you can act in hope. But sometimes hope, it waits. There's a waiting. And then there's confidence to be able to move forward. Notice Ruth's boldness, asking Boaz to marry her. So let me ask you, what helps you to maintain your integrity and honor to God in tempting circumstances? My hope is that your answer would actually not be technique, Right? It wouldn't be that you keep an acorn in your pocket. If you do that, that's fine. That's fine. But if you rub that acorn, hopefully what it reminds you of is not how to battle the temptation, but more to remind you that you are loved. And that out of being loved, you would not want to engage in what your heart so longs to engage in that is dishonoring to the Lord. Too much of what we try to do is technique and not enough of what we do is born of knowing who and whose we are. That that would be the driving motivation. That that would be what leads to wise practices, spiritual practices, use of the means of grace in these things. So Ruth 3, 1 through 13 teaches us that God blesses our efforts to maintain our integrity and honor him in tempting circumstances. What it doesn't tell us is when he chooses to do that. And it is most important to recognize that God's blessing is not always material. Most importantly, it is with his presence, is that we would not feel cut off from him. Too much of us are, are, are callous toward that. We want physical manifestation more than we want the person of God himself in and through union with Christ and the working of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So we would do well to meditate more upon not what we need to do and set up and accountability and those kind of things. Those are after what you ought do, which is to realize how deeply and profoundly you are loved and how, how much that love was in what Christ said when he said, come all ye who are heavy laden and burdened and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Father, thank you for rest in Christ. Thank you for hope in Christ. Uh, thank you that we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace to receive what we need in any time, whether that's a time of trouble or a time of need or a time where wisdom is needed. Help us as your servants maintain our integrity and honor you based on the firm foundation of knowing how deeply and profoundly we are loved by you. And help us encourage one another in that reality and that any of the techniques that we would come up with would always be born and founded on that reality. 
that we would not try in, in the, the strength that will grow weary in seeking to do good, but instead recognize the greater good that comes from honoring and glorifying you in our bodies, in our minds, in our hearts, in our actions, and the impact that it has on those around us. Right? Too often, we, we don't realize the impact that, that, that what we do, how we live, how that affects so many around us, future generations. God, help us to honor and glorify you as your ambassadors of your reconciliation in Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.